The title of today's message is, If Only. The author Kurt Vonnegut wrote this phrase, which is actually very interesting. He said, Of all the words of mice and men, the saddest are, it might have been. You know, if you could go back and redo one day in your life, what would it be? What would be that one day where you're like, you know what, if I could just choose one, I would go back and I would do that over. Maybe it's not a day. Maybe it's just a single moment or a single decision that you made that you regret. Or maybe for some of you it's not a single day or a single moment, but it's a a prolonged period of time, the way that you handled a particular situation or a particular season of life. And now you say, if only. If only I had done that differently, everything might be different. You know, many people live with regrets. Brandon Bostick is one of those people. Anybody know who Brandon Bostick is? I'll, uh, I'll share some story with you. Today is Super Bowl Sunday. You know I got to come out with an NFL reference. Uh, Super Bowl Sunday is pretty much a national holiday, unless you're a, a Broncos fan, but especially not if you're a Green Bay Packers fan. It, you know, uh, the Green Bay Packers and their fans, uh, this Super Bowl Sunday kind of feels like the Grinch stole their Christmas, right? It's like well, they're filled with these nagging thoughts of what might have been. And there's no one who feels a greater sense of regret this Super Bowl Sunday than Brandon Bostick of the Green Bay Packers. Brandon Bostick is the backup tight end on the Green Bay Packers team. And two weeks ago in the NFC Championship game, if any of you were watching it, the Green Bay Packers were up by five points with only two minutes left on the clock and they were about to receive the ball back. I mean, the game's pretty much over, right? People were actually leaving the stadium because they're like, you know what, it's over, it's done. Might as well beat the traffic. All the Packers had to do was receive the kickoff and then catch it and then just ride out the clock and, you know, they're on their way to the Super Bowl. Easy. And so the coach put out the hands team, which is the players on the team with the best hands for catching the ball because all they had to do was just catch the ball and hold on to it for two minutes. Should be pretty easy. So they put out the hands team. So Brandon Bostick is on the hands team. But the reason he's on the hands team is not because he's good at catching the ball, it's because he's good at blocking. In fact, his coach said of him at the beginning of the season, he said, Brandon Bostick is the best blocking tight end in the entire NFL. And so he was given a specific job and specific instructions. His job was to block so that Jordy Nelson, right, who's the Packers' star tight end, so Jordy Nelson could catch the ball and just hang on to it and they win the game. You know, Bostick really was the right man for the job that he was given. He was a great blocker. But here's what happened. The ball gets kicked off. But instead of doing what he was supposed to do, which was block so that Jordy Nelson could catch the ball, Bostick decided at the last moment to jump up in the air and try to catch the ball himself. And unfortunately what happened, the ball went right through his hands, hit him in the face, bounced up in the air. The the Seahawks received the ball and they go on to win the game. And in the press conference, this is interesting, right? The press conference after the game, uh, very distraught Brandon Bostick, you can imagine, he says to reporters, he says this quote, I feel like if only, now those are the words, right? If only I had just done my job, my assignment was to block, Jordy would have caught the ball and the game would have been over. Did you catch those words? If only, if only, those are the words of regret, 
And here in 2 Samuel chapter 18, we're going to hear those very same words come out of the mouth of David. If only. But here's the thing you're going to see is that in the midst of this story about regret and despair, what's incredible, what makes it wonderful, is that this story points us to the one thing that can actually give us the ability to cope with our regrets and to move into true hope and joyful expectation in our lives for the future. In 2 Samuel chapter 18, we find David, we pick up our story at a place where David is in the midst of the greatest trial of his entire life. And that's really saying a lot because David's been through quite a number of trials, a number of very difficult things in his life. But this one is different because this one is personal. This time David's own son, Absalom, has betrayed him and he is leading a rebellion against him, a political coup to oust David and insert himself as king. You know, Absalom wasn't content with just being a prince in Israel. He wanted to be king. And so for years, Absalom worked and undermined David. He laid the foundation for this rebellion. He conspired to start this political coup. And he would, he would uh, turn people against his father and stir up discord. And he would endear people to himself. And ultimately, Absalom pulled the trigger and he led this full-on rebellion, this political coup, and ousted his father as king and he declared himself to be king. But you see, it wasn't even enough for Absalom to just be king of Israel. Absalom determined that in order to really assert himself as king, what he needed to do is he needed to kill his father. It wasn't enough to just be king. He has to kill his father. And so Absalom amassed this army and they have been pushing and they have been pursuing David. They've pursued him out of the city of Jerusalem. They've pursued him into the wilderness. And this is where we pick up the story. That David has fled beyond the Jordan River. He's running away, right? And Absalom's men and Absalom's army is quickly approaching the area where David and those who are loyal to him have gone to, to hide and to flee. And what's happening here is everything is kind of building up until this battle that's going to take place here in this chapter between Absalom's army and those who are loyal to David. So let's read here from verse 1. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite, which is always a fun name to say. So uh, David... You know, David never really wanted it to come to this. He never wanted it to come to this point where he's having to go to war against his own son. But now Absalom is coming with this army ultimately to kill David. But this army is just going to attack all these people who are loyal to David. And David realizes that if he doesn't do something, if these people don't organize themselves to fight, Absalom is just going to come in with his army and he's going to commit a massacre he's just going to kill them all and so David looks around the people who are with him and he says okay here's what we need to do we need three divisions Joab you're leading one Abishai you're leading another Ittai you're, you're leading the third division you see David was a skilled military man this stuff was second hat to him right he knew exactly what to do here he was a brilliant general with years of experience in battle and so David is not at a loss at all about what to do. He knows exactly what to do. He instantly just switches into military mode, you know, general mode. And he starts organizing the troops and thinking as a general. You know, David was a very skilled military man. 
But you know who was not a very skilled military man was his son Absalom. You know, David grew up as a shepherd, as a poor shepherd. Absalom, though, grew up as a spoiled rich kid in the king's palace with a silver spoon in his mouth. David was a shepherd. Absalom's never worked a day in his life. David's been a soldier since his youth. He has decades of experience behind him fighting in wars and battles, but not Absalom. Absalom is the kind of guy who likes to fancy himself a general, right? Like he likes the sound of it when people call him General Absalom. He likes to look at himself in the mirror and, and admire himself wearing the general's uniform. But Absalom has no experience at leading a military, whereas David is an expert. And so, you know, Absalom should really know better than to try to engage his father in a military battle. The area of David's expertise. And you got to wonder, what is Absalom thinking in this situation? Well, that's exactly it, isn't it? He's not thinking. His judgment is clouded by what? By his own vanity. His judgment is clouded by his own vanity and his desire to make a name for himself. You know, Absalom had actually been advised in the previous chapter by the guy uh, Ahithophel, who was considered the wisest man in Israel. He was advised not to try to engage David in battle. But here is unskilled, unexperienced Absalom, and he's going to try to defeat his father at his father's own game, at his father's own area of expertise. Why would he do that? Because of vanity, because of his delusions of grandeur, and his desire for glory and fame for himself. And vanity is what's going to lead to his downfall. You know, I think we all need to be careful not to let our vanity cloud our judgment. Because like Absalom, our, our vanity can lead us to do things which are unwise and even foolish. And unbridled vanity, unrestrained vanity can easily lead us to our own downfall. And that is why humility is such an important thing. You know, I think humility is one of the most misunderstood concepts. A lot of people think that humility means to just be down on yourself, right? Like to be negative on yourself and tell yourself that you're a big loser all the time. Well, I don't think that's what humility is about. You know, I would say this. The essence of what it means to be humble is to have an accurate understanding of who you really are. An accurate understanding of who you really are. Do you think Absalom right now has an accurate understanding of who he really is? No way, right? This guy is just totally, he has this inflated view of himself and his own importance and even his own ability. You know, a lot of people, like I said, they think that humility is just telling yourself that you're terrible and bad all the time and worthless. I don't believe that's what humility is about. Humility is about having an accurate understanding of who you really are. And there's nothing that gives you a true understanding, such a true understanding of who you really are, more than the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know that the gospel really tells you who you are, and it gives you the most balanced view of who you really are than anything else. Because here's what the gospel tells you. It says, you were created in the image of God, but you have fallen short of the glory of God. And you deserve the judgment of God. But you are so loved by God that he took that judgment upon himself. Do you see how that gives you a balanced understanding of who you are? Nothing gives you a more balanced understanding of who you really are than the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Because here's what happens when you really understand the gospel. You become, at the same time, incredibly humble and incredibly confident. At the same time. 
You see, the gospel doesn't allow you to have an overinflated view of yourself. Because what the gospel tells you is that you are merely human. And no matter who you are, you have missed the mark. You have fallen short more than you even realize. You are more broken than you will ever really grasp. But the gospel also doesn't allow you to have an overly negative view of yourself. Because here's what it tells you. It tells you that you are incredibly loved. You are incredibly valued by God. That he created you. That he knows you personally. And he knit you together in your mother's womb lovingly. And he placed his image upon you. And you bear his image. And he endowed you uniquely with characteristics which reflect who he is. And then out of his great love for you, he traded the glory of heaven for the agony of the cross in order to save you. Because that's how much you mean to him. So never think that you are worthless. You should never think that. You see, the message of the gospel gives us this incredibly balanced understanding of who we are. Which when we really understand it, it will make you at the same time, incredibly humble and incredibly confident. And David really understood that, you know. It's part of what, David, what made David a man after God's own heart. He knew who he was before God. And as a result, he was a man who was incredibly humble because he, he knew that he was flawed. He knew that he was a sinner. And yet he is incredibly confident to come before God and confident in who he is in God because he understands how much God loves him. Absalom, though, Absalom doesn't have this understanding. And his vanity has clouded his judgment and it will ultimately result in his downfall. So let's continue reading from the, the end of verse 2. The king, David, said to the men, I myself will also go with you. But the men said, you shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it's better that you send us help from the city. Right at this point in his life, David is kind of like Peyton Manning, right? He's like super old. He's kind of hobbling around. And, uh, but he still wants to be in the game, right? He's just like stubborn. He's like, I'm going to be in there. I want to get in there. Let me, let me play, coach. But, but the, the men around him, right, they're like, no, no way, no way. We're not letting you go out there. And they give him three reasons. Number one, they say, hey, David, you know that game Capture the Flag? Well, guess what? You're the flag, man. You're the one that they're gunning for. It's just unwise for you to be out there in battle. The second reason they say is, you can do more for us in the city than you can in the battle because, you know, if we start getting beat, you can send in the reserves. And the third thing, they don't say, but it's definitely implied here, is because it's a conflict of interest for David to be out there in battle against his own son. I mean, what's going to happen if David, you know, comes up against Absalom in battle? Do you think that David has it in him to raise a sword against his own son? Clearly not. Like, that's been proven in the life of David. And these guys know that. They know that Absalom will kill David without giving it a second thought. But David is incapable of raising a sword against Absalom. And so they say, David, there's no way you should be out there in this battle, so stay behind. And David wisely uh, takes their advice. Verse 4. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. That says a lot about David as a leader. So the king stood at the side of the gate while at all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands and the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. 
David makes it very clear. Look, guys, you go out and you fight this battle, but I don't want any of you to hurt my son Absalom. After everything that Absalom has done to David, even though Absalom at this very moment is trying to kill David, David still loves his son. David is still holding on to hope for his son. And isn't that what parents do? I mean, isn't that the, the, how God has built us, right? That we never give up hope on our kids. We, we keep on loving them, even if they've done things that are terribly wrong. You know, that's part of the image of God that we bear. That we have this love for our children that is a reflection of the love that God has for us. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said about this parental love that God has placed in us. He said this, Our children may plunge into the worst of sins, but they are our children still. They may scoff at our God. They may tear our heart to pieces with their wickedness. We cannot take complacency in them, but at the same time we cannot unchild them nor erase their images from our hearts. In this bond of how a parent loves their child at all times, like, like even David's loving his rebellious son Absalom who has murderous thoughts towards him. It's just a reflection in a small way of the greater love that God has for us that is just like that. Let's carry on in verse 6. So the army went out into the field against Israel and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. You know, the forest of Ephraim is a place that you can still visit in Israel today. It actually sits kind of in a, a gully, kind of like a small canyon. And uh, it's a real forest there, kind of in the midst of this very arid area. But, uh, you know, isn't this interesting where it says that David fought against the people of Israel? Isn't that weird to read that? That David, the king of Israel, fights against the people of Israel. And that's because most of Israel has now turned away from David and followed his son Absalom. You know, just the fickleness of the human heart. Verse 7. And the men of David were defeated there by the servants of, or the men of Israel were defeated by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day. 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Absalom had David completely outnumbered, right? David's got a much smaller group of men with him, but David and his men, they have experience, which is what Absalom does not have. And so they come up with a strategy. They withdraw into the woods and they use the woods to give them the upper hand in this battle. And in the woods, right, you know, both the experience of David's leaders and the inexperience of Absalom are just magnified and accentuated and the forest just creates this chaos this confusion for Absalom's army and people are being stuck in bushes and brambles they're running into all kinds of natural hazards that they weren't prepared for and David's men although fewer in number are able to win a great victory because of the forest in verse 9 and Absalom happened to meet the servants of David Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of an oak tree, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. In 2 Samuel chapter 14, we read that Absalom had uh, thick, luxurious hair. You know, it's in uh, 2 Samuel 14, 25. He had this thick, luxurious, this big head of hair. And it's really the very image of Absalom's vanity, right? Just like this man with amazing hair, right? And it, but this amazing, beautiful head of hair ends up being his downfall. And as Absalom's riding through the forest on his mule, you know, 
how do you call yourself a king when you're riding through the forest on a mule? But anyway, he's riding through the forest on a mule, and his hair gets caught in the thick of the branches of this tree, and he's left hanging there. You know, it's such poetic justice, right? This guy who's so vain ends up getting caught up by this source of his, you know, this image of his vanity hanging there in the tree, and his, his mule just walks off without him. Verse 10, and a certain man saw it and told Joab, behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Joab said to the man who told him, what? You saw him? Why did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have, I would have been glad to give you 10 pieces of silver and a belt. Belts are pretty cool. Uh, but the man said to Joab, even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I could not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. So one of David's men finds Absalom caught in the tree, and he goes and he tells Joab, and he, he says, Joab, I found Absalom. He's hanging in this tree. And Joab says, you found Absalom? Well, why didn't you kill him? I would have been happy. I would have given you a reward. And the guy says, well, look, man, reward or no reward, you heard what David said. David gave us specific instructions not to hurt Absalom. And so this guy, you know, Joab says, okay, well, show me where he's at. So, so he leads Joab to the place where Absalom is at, caught in this tree. And when they get there, Absalom, uh, you know, I mean, Joab looks at the guy he's been walking with. He's been listening to him. Yeah, 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 I remember what David said. H hang on a second. Look, I don't have time for this. And he just thrusts three spears into the heart of Absalom and, and kills him. And then we see that, the Abs that Joab's assistants just come and they finish the job off. Yeah, it says in verse 13, he said, on the other hand, uh, I, if I had dealt treacherously against my, his life and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. And Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. He took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And the 10 young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Verse 16, then Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom, and they threw him in a great pit in the forest, and they raised over him a great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. And he said, I have no son to keep my name in, in remembrance. And he called the pillar after his own name. He called it, and it's called Absalom's Monument to this day. So Absalom during his lifetime had set up a monument to himself which is kind of the equivalent of going to the gift store and buying yourself a mug that says world's greatest boss, right? It's basically the same thing. So the, the monument that Absalom erected for himself was just another example of his vanity. But Joab and the men of Israel, they, they refused to give Absalom a king's burial. They just dig a pit, they throw him in, they cover it with rocks, done. But the question now is, how is David going to react when he hears this news that Absalom is dead? And David really didn't want Absalom to die. And so in the next few verses, uh, in verses 19 through 32, here's what happens. That there are these two messengers who are kind of, you know, competing. They both want to take this message to David. Except the one messenger, the first one, he gets to David first because he's younger and faster. But he doesn't actually know the message, which is a problem, right? Like, you can be a really good presenter. But if you don't know the message, then you've got nothing to say. 
And so this second guy gets to uh, David, the Cushite is what he's called, or the Cushite, he gets to David and he, uh, and he has the message. And we read in verse 31, Behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. That's a really tactful way of saying it. But what he's saying is that Absalom is dead. The king said to the Cushite, verse 32, is it well with the young man Absalom? You see, this is all that David cares about. You know, as a statesman, you look at this and you say, David, this is just not good. I mean, you're the king over Israel. This guy's a rebel. He's wanting to kill you. Well, why are you so concerned about his life? But as a parent, you can't help but understand why he still, even at this moment, cares about the life of his son. And the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. Now that's a very polite way of saying it, but what he's saying is the message is Absalom is dead. And we read in verse 33. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. And it was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son, and the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. And the king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. You know, when it says that David was deeply moved, those words, what they, what they really imply, what they, you know, they say, is that it's a deep trembling of the body. David's body was shaking. You can imagine if he was standing when he heard this news, he just collapses to the ground, just tears, sobs, uncontrollable. He's completely undone. He's distraught. He's inconsolable. And he goes up to his chambers above the gate of the city and he weeps and he weeps and he cries out so loudly that all the people can hear it. And the people are like embarrassed because it's so loud. And he says, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. You know, it almost makes you wonder, you know, wait a second, David. You won. Why are you upset right now? Absalom, yeah, he was your son, but he wanted to kill you. He was evil. He was wicked. He would have killed you, and he wouldn't have even lost an ounce of sleep over it. But yet David is just completely undone because of the loss of his son. Why? Well, why is it so intense here? Well, there's this phrase that David says, which reveals why he is so incredibly upset about the death of Absalom. David says in these words in verse 33, if only, if only, if only this could have ended differently, if only, those are the words of regret. You see these tears and sobs and tremblings of David, they aren't those of a man who misses his son as much as they are tears and sobs and tremblings of regret. Of all the words of mice and men, the saddest are what might have been. David's thinking, if only. If only I would have been a better parent. If only I would have disciplined him better. If only I wouldn't have spoiled him so much. If only I wouldn't have let him get away with everything. If only I would have just handed him over to the authorities when he, when he murdered Amnon. If only I would have dealt with it differently when Tamar was raped. If only I would have raised Amnon to be a better man. If only I would have been around more for my kids. 
If only I hadn't been so caught up in my job. If only I hadn't had an affair with Bathsheba. If only I hadn't tried to cover it up by killing somebody. If only I hadn't ignored the word of the Lord and taken all those wives. Everything might have been different. If only. You see, the reason David is so distraught, the reason he's shaking, the reason he's so deeply moved when he hears that Absalom is dead is because David realized that he had provided the soil in which this whole tragedy grew up. Absalom made his choices. He alone is responsible for his actions. But David provided the soil in which Absalom grew up, in which this whole scenario grew out of. David's own sins, his unrestrained passions, his indulgent parenting, never disciplining his sons, never saying no to them. That was the soil in which Absalom had grown up, and that was the soil in which this tragedy had grown up. And David cannot help but think, if only I had done things differently, things might not have turned out this way. My son might not be dead right now. My son might have turned out to be a better man. You know, in a very real way, we can say that Absalom is David's son. G. Campbell Morgan, the, the great British Bible scholar and preacher, he said this. He said, this surely has a deeper note in it than that of the merely half-conscious repetition of words occasioned by personal grief. The father recognized how much he was responsible for the son. It is, it is as though he said, he is indeed my son. His weaknesses are my weaknesses. His passions are my passions. His sins are my sins. David was filled with regrets, just like so many people are, like so many of us are. There are things we look back on in life and we say, I really wish I hadn't done that. I really wish I hadn't said that. I wish I had dealt with that differently. And you know what? That's unavoidable. We all have regrets because regret is the very nature of sin and imperfection. It leaves us with regrets. It's unavoidable. All of us have them. And we often think about how things might have been different, if only. And we play out those scenarios in our heads. But I want you to notice how David concluded that statement. He says this, If only I could have died in Absalom's place. If only I could have died instead of him. If only I could have taken his place in death and he could have taken my place in life. If only I could die so that he could live. How many parents have felt that way when you see your child suffering or going through an illness or struggling with some difficulty in their life? You just wish that you could take that away from them and even take it upon yourself. It just, why can't it be me? Why does it have to be him or her? Why can't it be me instead? David wished that he could have died in the place of his rebellious son, but he couldn't. But here is the glorious news of the gospel. You ready for it? What David couldn't do, God did by dying in the place of rebellious sinners. That same anguished love that David had for Absalom, it points us to the love that God has for us. And he says out of his love, oh, that I could die in their place. And in the cry of David, we hear an echo of the cry of God for his lost children, his desire to restore them, his desire to forgive them. And he says, I will do it by dying in their place. You know, that is the great message of the gospel that gives us hope for this life and for eternity that God has brought back rebels and traitors just like us 
People who haven't restrained their passions. People who haven't followed in submission and obedience to our king. He brings us back and he does it. He did it by dying in our place. What David only wished that he could do for his rebellious son, God has done for us. He took your place in death so that you could take his place in life. He died so that you can live. And let me tell you this, the gospel has so much to say about regret. It has so much to say about the regrets that you have. First of all, the gospel message of Jesus Christ is that in Christ Jesus, because of the cross, you are forgiven. In Christ, God has closed the book on all your sins and the mistakes that you have regrets about. And so the gospel sets you free to forget that which lies behind and to press forward to that which lies ahead, to the upward calling of Jesus Christ. But here's the other thing the gospel has to say about your, regret, your regrets, which I, I think is really significant. You know, why, why do we have regrets? Regrets are always tied to what? This deep inner longing that is unfulfilled, right? That's why we have regrets, because we have a deep inner longing and it has been unfulfilled. You know, there are certain things that all people long for and that all people desire. You know, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, before he wrote The Lord of the Rings, he wrote a, a short book, uh, which you can actually get online. I just uh, got a copy of it this week. Uh, it's called On Fairy Stories. And the basic premise of this book, On Fairy Stories, was that he was dealing with and answering the question of why is it that people love the types of stories that we tend to love? And here's what he said. He said it's because that there are just these certain kinds of stories that people just cannot get enough of. Stories that depict a supernatural world. Stories about escaping death, escaping aging, escaping time. It's stories about love that is eternal, about love without parting, love that conquers death. Stories of good overcoming evil, stories of victory snatched from the jaws of defeat, stories of sacrificial heroism that brings life out of certain death. I mean, aren't these, isn't that what all the great stories are about? Aren't those what the stories that truly move you, isn't that, aren't those the themes that run through them? You know, we pay good money to see uh, those movies, to read those stories. We crave those kinds of stories. We can't get enough. Now, why is that? Well, here's what Tolkien said. He said, the reason is because these are the deep human longings. Even in our age of reason, we want stories. We want stories that tell us that good will triumph over evil, that there is a supernatural world, that there is love without parting, that there is a way to escape death. And the reason we feel that way, the reason we want that so badly, is because we were created in the image of God. And we are fallen, but we have this lingering sense, this lingering memory of the way that things were meant to be, the way that we were created to live. And we long deep down to get back to that place. And that's why deep down all human beings feel that we were not meant to die, that death is wrong. There's something inherently wrong about it. We weren't meant to die. We weren't meant to lose our loved ones. We feel deep down inside that good should triumph over evil. That there must be a supernatural world. And the reason we crave stories is because they are expressions of those deep human longings. Because we all look at the reality, reality of the world around us and we say, well, maybe that's how it is, but that's not how it should be. That's not how it's supposed to be. 
And Tolkien, again, Tolkien was a Christian, and he said, in Jesus Christ, you find all of the things which you are drawn to in stories. All of the things which you desire in your heart of hearts, escape from death, love that conquers death, good conquering evil, heroic self-sacrifice, and when everything looks the darkest, life out of death and triumph out of defeat. And here's why. Because the gospel story of Jesus Christ is the underlying reality to which all the stories point. At the deep, all of the deepest longings of our hearts, they point us to Jesus Christ. And they are only truly satisfied in and through Jesus Christ. You know, the promise of the gospel is that all of those things that we desire deep down in our heart of hearts, they can be yours and they will be yours in Jesus Christ. All of those longings which are attached to your regrets, the things that make your regrets regrettable, all of the unfulfilled desires of what might have been, they're ultimately tied to these deep longings which are common to all human beings. And they are found, they are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The gospel says that your regrets, to your regrets what the gospel says is that Jesus Christ died for your sins. He took your place in death so that you might take his place in life. And he utterly destroyed and defeated death in order that you might be saved and redeemed in order to bring you to that place of perfection which your heart ultimately longs for, which we call heaven. You know, all the longings that are tied to our regrets will be satisfied in heaven. And God has made a way for you to go to heaven through Jesus Christ who took your place in death that you might take his place in life. And I pray for you this morning, my prayer for you as we go, is that you would accept that gift that you would receive it and that you would believe the gospel whether it's for the first time or the 500th time that you would receive it and you would believe the gospel that your life would be filled with hope that you might know even now the redemption and the forgiveness and the hope and the joy that can only come from receiving the love of God for you through Jesus Christ amen let's stand and pray Lord, we thank you for your love shown for us. We thank you that even in the story of David and, and his stubborn love for his rebellious child, Lord, we see a beautiful image of your love for us. In David's desire that if only things could have been different, if only things could have ended differently, if only he could have given his life for his son. Lord, we cannot help but remember the gospel. Lord, that you have loved us that much and beyond, Lord. You have given your life for us that we might be saved. Lord, this morning, may we receive that truth of the gospel. Lord, I pray for people here today who need to receive it for the first time. Lord, would you do that work in their life that they would say, yes, Lord, I receive it. I receive your grace for me. Thank you. And Lord, but for all of the rest of us, Lord, who have already received it, Lord, may we receive it again today. We need it to carry on day by day. We need to know that truth of the gospel in our minds and in our hearts. So we remember that today and we say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.